is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon and welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. You're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial. This program is also available on podcast on www.bze.org.au I'm Natalie Bucknell standing in for Vivian and Erin this afternoon with Andy on the panel. My usual gig is with Kay and Michael on the BZE Science and Solutions show at 8.30 on a Friday morning. I'm delighted to join you this afternoon to showcase the Sustainable Living Festival which starts in Melbourne on Saturday the 4th of February and runs for most of the month. Let's hear from Luke Taylor, Director of the Festival to get the inside running on the event. Here's what he had to say in an interview with Vivian late last year. Uh, Luke Taylor is our guest. He's the manager of the Sustainable Living Festival and has done this for many years. Today he's in the thick of preparing the 2017 festival. Meanwhile, the world's nations have made um, promises at Marrakesh. They've had a really working meeting there at Marrakesh to implement their policies, but Australia is lagging very far behind. Apparently, I spoke to someone on this show a few weeks ago who said that um, we were judged 58th out of 58 countries in having low ambition. So I think it's very important that Luke's festival here, the Sustainable Living Festival, is a kind of cultural voice in contrast to that official level where Australia lacks ambition and we know our political leaders seem to be really dragging the chain or damaging the climate ambition that most people listening to this program would have. So, Luke, you can pick and choose between speakers and artists, opinion leaders. I think it's a huge responsibility, you know, because you could you could give the idea that there's nothing that we can do, that, that it's all just talking heads. But you, you have a, a thing in mind of, of impressing on the people who come to the festival something. What is it? Yeah, we do have a responsibility. We have a... We take that responsibility, obviously, really seriously because... You know, what, what we've got to come back to is just the basics. And the basics are, well, what is it that we're trying to sustain? What do we care about? That is, that is always central to the way that we program. What is it that we care about? What do we want to protect? And from that, then you can move on and say, okay, well, in order for us to protect the, this, these things that, that we care about, then the big challenge, obviously, is, well, we've got to look at the, the scale and the speed of change that's required um, to be able to protect those things. And that's obviously where it gets challenging, but also, you know, interesting as well when we're, when we're programming. Um, 
I mean, obviously, at the at the moment, and it has been for for, for many many years, um, we're all aware of is you know the mother of all issues with with climate change really dominating in terms of the urgency of, re, of the response that we, the, we we need. You know, it is it is an emergency situation, um, and you know we've been looking at it in that context for quite some time and so that does really colour and, and put, put when we look at it through that lens the types of programming that we do for the for the festival become challenging because um, there we're, we're still I think you know as a local um, community as well as a global community coming to that point of acceptance that it is an emergency situation and that's a very different mode um, to be in um, than, um, than sort of like I guess a classic concern of mm. climate change and I guess you know the, the point here is obviously there's there's a range of levels of concern and then there's a range of level level of response um, and then there's a range of level also of what you think is possible to achieve um, and that's where it gets quite interesting and quite complex. Well I love coming to that festival because there's so much on display of what people are doing but I'm worried about civil society at the moment you know are we prepared enough for the emergency because I went to talk today from the Bureau of Meteorology and, and he said, you know, the number of heatwave days, for example, is going to increase, the number of bushfire days in Victoria, in, in Sydney, in, near big cities, is going to increase, plus the drying out of the land is going to make growing enough food very difficult. So these are kind of practical threats and he said we're now talking about adaptation like farmers are adapting emergency service like fire services are, they have to burn off earlier than spring now they, they used to burn off in spring well they can start clearing earlier than that now because otherwise they set off a, a bushfire they can't control and so he says we're starting to talk to those services and I think that um civil society is not really aware of that enough. I don't think we get enough messages and that's why I'm hoping at the festival you'll have some messages like that, really practical things like how do you protect yourself? And how Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think you know, this is this goes to the to sort of the heart of of the conversation that we ha need to have more within the environment and the climate movement because you know there is at times a, a, a wrestle about obviously what language that we use both internally and externally you know particularly careful about what language and communications it's, that we're using um, to the general public and of course we should be we should really think strategically about you know obviously what we're trying to say. And, and what takes and what sticks within within the community, but internally, if we just think about, you know, have the conversation sort of internally and with our broader listeners who we include in that sort of internal conversation about, you know, looking at the threat, you know, confronting the threat, and I, and I want to be really clear about the reason sort of why that we internally within SLF look at the the. Uh, the climate situation in an emergency with an emergency lens. That is not to say um, that it's purely just about looking at the problem or the threat. Mm. But it's also about how we look at the solutions, mm. because you know it's that old sort of thing: is you can't come up with a solution to a problem unless you know what the the, the scale of the problem is or the nature of the threat. Mm. So that's why we're very very keen on 
looking at the problem in an, in an emergency context because it starts to give you a, in a sense, a, a pathway or a, or a, a, a sense of what the problem, the nature of the problem is. And as we know, what which we do in all other sort of areas of society is when we've got an emergency problem, we get we ha- we we work on an emergency response, yeah. and um, that's something that we're not currently doing. Obviously, with with climate change, we've got to get we've got to get the language right. We've got to get the communications right for all the different audiences that are out there, and that's at the more mainstream um, community level and, and also at the conservative um, level as well within the community. And, and that's, that is, can seem like a challenge, and for many people I think that will even seem like an impossibility. But the question is, have we actually tried? Yeah. Like, have we really sat down and, and thought about strategic ways that we can start to have this 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 conversation which is based on the 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 climate reality of where we're at and what it would take for us to actually get out and protect the things that we care about yeah i i totally agree that comes through my mind to a lot of the meetings i go to what would it look like if we really tried because i don't think we're trying hard enough yet all all you know even though it's a bigger threat than people have done before earlier this year we did a program including uh, franklin delano roosevelt's wartime mobilization and his fireside chats with the people were marvelous pieces of radio where he just instilled the right amount of this is really dangerous but we can do it we've done it before and building on what they did in the Great Depression, you know, the Dust Bowl relief and all of that, they knew they could do it and he mobilised people, but he mobilised courage. You know, he just inspired courage. Those words and, and the programs with Eleanor Roosevelt going around the factories, you know, she found these women building great ships, battleships, and their children were sleeping in the car. And so within minutes, you know, within months, Roosevelt had wheeled out, you know, take away food for those families and daycare for the children and... And all sorts of social things changed. As a result, the Negroes became far more integrated in the Navy and in the workforce, where they'd previously been at the lowest ranks. There were a lot of social changes that became, that became apparent out of that engagement of courage, you know, really engaging it. So I feel that you must have some speakers here who will talk along those lines because a lot of people are starting to talk about emergency. Now, have you, who have you sort of auditioned so far? We're lucky enough in partnership um, with Hepburn Wind um, and also the Coalition for Community Energy to be hosting um, Soren Hermansen. He's, uh, he's the guy that was responsible for uh, leading the formation of the world's first 100% um, renewable island um, uh, in in Denmark and he has a fantastic example about how they had to work with a, a very conservative farming community to get to win them over to be able to make this transition happen and I think his story kind of really illustrates a lot about how we have to really start to, to look at reaching out you know obviously I'm not suggesting this is the first time that you know this has been thought about but you know, how do we successfully obviously reach out to communities that you know maybe more conservative um, views around climate change. And I also noticed on your program that people can go to Hepburn Wind on a bus tour. Yes. There's a bus tour organised, yes. so I think you can register for that. Now, listeners, as soon as you hear this, I hope it's not booked out, but you can go and see this community-organised wind farm. There's two wind turbines there, as far as I know. 
Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's uh, obviously a whole extended program of events and activities across the whole three weeks of the festival. So many people know the festival as the three days um, sort of spectacular big weekend at Federation Square. But um, we're much broader than that. We start on the 4th of February and run right through to the 28th. And, um, and the uh, community energy... Um, uh, Congress will actually take place on the 27th and the 28th. It's the last event um, in the events calendar, so uh, make sure that uh, you get along to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, Luke, we're listeners, we're talking to Luke Taylor, who's the manager of the Sustainable Living Festival, and he's just in the gestational stage of it now. Luke, just this year, what, what climate event has sort of really touched you the most? There's been so much happening, and I find it very hard to cover it all. There's loads happening uh, bad and good but what, what, what have you noticed yeah I think I mean one of the things that struck me with the age of consequences is a is a pretty hard hitting um, uh, film which has been put together focusing on the national security issues that climate change presents and um, I really recommend um, people seeing the film because it's it's a it's a fantastic snapshot really of of the implications um, and the consequences uh, of of climate change from that national security perspective, and it's been made specifically to talk to a probably a more conservative and sort of military focused uh, you know audience in the US. So it's actually quite an interesting piece of communications as well to, to look at. But in the film, they talk about the circumstance of Bangladesh. Bangladesh has a has what they're calling the potentially the first climate fence which surrounds the whole per- perimeter of the, ba- the border of the of the country and of course Bangladesh is you know facing um, you know, devastating um, devastating uh, sea level rise um, which could affect you know up to you know 20 percent of the land mass of the of the country and the question of course is if, if there's a barbed wire fence you know the whole border of the the country then where do, where do people go and how do they how do they survive um, so I think that that is it's becoming a, a conundrum in that it's going to be very hard to move people to goals of you know 100% renewable energy within 10 years if there's not a motivating factor and so the question is well what is the motivating factor and it's a bit like your war analogy before in terms of some of the examples you've given before is you know people didn't go to war unless they knew that there was a significant amount of threat I mean that's when people you know people have to have a motivating factor to be able to take a particular level of action so that's something that we really need to explore further is obviously how do we reach that that point in that community where the threat is seen obviously to be high enough to be able to match the level of action that we need and that's obviously moving further and further up the line as the situation is becoming more and more pressing and more and, and, and more and more threatening. Do you think the climate movement is organised enough? Do you see you know, all the different aspects of it who will be represented at the festival? They're not just all climate groups, there'll be lots of other sustainability groups of various sorts but do you think there's this sort of place where they all get together or is it just everyone doing their own thing or working on such a 
huge problem. It's it's decentralised to my way of looking at it. What do you think? First of all, I think I mean there's there's so much capacity. Um, we've got a, a really strong movement here in Melbourne, and I think in particular, um, but you know not just in Melbourne. There's you know the diversity of work you know, right through the country is extraordinary. So I think there's a there's a lot more that needs to be uh, achieved at um, bringing the movement together in some way, shape, or form that both recognises the diversity of approaches, and this yeah. is, I think, always the challenge, is recognising the diversity of approaches um, and the, 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 the focus areas that people choose to, um, but um, linking that in with an overarching message which helps to you know, bring the whole ship, so to speak, forward yeah. at the same time. So we've got a lot of work to do. I see the climate action divided up between anti-cold coal, oil and gas, you know, the huge efforts to stop those big mega mines and just close down the power stations, which in Victoria I think you're starting to get that sort of move to get some legislation in there. And certainly at Marrakesh they said the states in Australia were way ahead of the federal ambition in closing down uh, coal-fired power, for example. So it's anti those those things and then pro-renewables. But then at the Sustainable Living Festival I see a lot more things about horticulture, landscape, you know, urban food provision, lifestyle changes, efficiencies and things like that. Is, is there anything at the festival that's going to be new this year? The sort of, I don't know if you represent the anti, anti-fossil fuels and pro-renewables very much at the festival and the lifestyle thing in the middle, but is there anything new that overarches those three things? You know, obviously there's been a lot of focus on energy and renewables and that transition, but um, probably not so much around land use, um, animal agriculture, and I know obviously that Beyond Zero Emissions did um, an ag plan, you know, nearly two years ago or so now. I mean, that is an area that we constantly get you know feedback on why isn't there more content related to that so this year we're actually devoting um our our programming for the festival's great debate on animal agriculture and um there'll be a a number of uh high profile speakers which we can't release just yet but that will be um yeah really looking at that from many different perspectives. I mean, um, it's a, the more you go into it, it the, the more interesting it becomes. But I mean, in terms of you know, for the Beyond Zero Emission audience, obviously it's it's a it's a critical one you know to look at because if your end goal is uh, you know negative emissions um, uh, endpoint, then the question is, well, where would what where does animal agriculture fit into a land use plan? What does it look like? Or we're going to have a, a Pretty pretty big event on that night. I always remember we have um, a researcher called Gerard Wedderburn Bishop who we interview a bit, and he said there's 20 livestock for every human being on the planet. It's even the sheer weight of it. You think, well, there's cows. That's big livestock, not even little chickens and ducks and things. So it's a big question, and I'm glad you're touching. Do you just want to reel off a list of some of the other the famous names or big names that you're going to do? We we won't go into any detail. Yes, we have um, one of our star guests. Is um, Shutez Kat Martinez, who's uh, the 16-year-old eco warrior. He's, he 
he's being dubbed, suing the US government over inaction on climate change. He's an amazing performer as well. He's a spoken word poet and Mm. climate activist and I'm, I'm really excited about this one because I think that his, his message is that it's our generation that's going to obviously bear a lot of the, the brunt of the, of, of the effects. But he's also saying it's, it's, it, it is my generation that needs to stand up. And you know, and, and not just pointing his finger at you know the our generation, so to speak. Uh, he he really feels that it's time, you know, for sixteen year olds, fifteen, sixteen year olds to stand up and really get active in the movement. And I think that's an incredibly inspiring thing. We have to get some school audiences along to that. Yes, we have a schools day, a focus schools day on the eleventh of February. Sorry, on the tenth of February, and the eleventh of February is the general. Public um, okay. forum. Who else? Um, we've also um, uh, have um, Soren Hermansman, uh, which I've um, mentioned before. Um, Tim Flannery will also be speaking on um, why we must declare a climate emergency, yeah. um, with um, presented by the Bayside Climate uh, Action Group. So the full program details are on slf.org.au, and people can pres- uh, look at the big weekends program and as well as the wider three weeks as well. Thank you very much. So that's Luke Taylor at the early stages of preparation. I'm sure it'll all come to fruition on the banks of the Yarra. Sustainable Living Festival. It goes for practically a month and the big weekend. Tell us again the dates. It's the 10th, 11th and 12th. Okay. So you need to book for some of the things and uh, have a good look at the program. There's something there for everyone. Thank you, Luke. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving social security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our national advocacy hotline on 03 83 94 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR. We've just been hearing from Luke Taylor from the Sustainable Living Festival that kicks off this weekend. One of the presenters at the festival this year is Philip Sutton, who's done a lot of work on the concept of a climate emergency declaration that Vivian and Luke touched on in that previous interview. Philip, welcome to the community show. Hi, Natalie. How are you? Good. Thanks very much for joining us today. Look, Philip, most of our listeners would be aware of the urgency for action on climate, but why do you think a climate emergency declaration is the best way to achieve this? I guess there's two parts to that. One's the emergency bit and the other's the declaration. Okay. Um, the emergency mode part of it, um, the classic thing is an emergency is something where you give a lot of priority to the issue, you give it urgency, time and effort. So that's the first part. The second bit is um, what we have to do for the climate is to actually restructure the economy. So the question then is, well, what's the best example of an emergency response that that deals with um, something like rebuilding the economy? And and for that, you really need to go back and look at the World War II or World War I economic mobilisations. And they, they give you an idea of just the extraordinary scale of what can be accomplished physically with the economy if you really apply the emergency response. Then the next aspect of it is 
well, why have a declaration? And that's really to do with providing a social signal or an institutional signal saying, you know, we're actually going to go beyond business as usual. And interestingly, even going beyond reform as usual, so that it really reinforces the importance of, the, of giving priority to the issue, urgency, devoting the funds that are needed, devoting the time and effort. Um, and the declaration part is kind of like a signal saying, we're going to do it now, we start now. It's time to get on with it, yes. That's right. So you've, you've got a particular strategy in mind for, for how we could implement a climate emergency declaration. What, what are your ideas about how it would work, Philip? Okay, well, it's, it's, it's an interesting approach because it's almost the exact opposite of what you expect. When we first started off with the, um, with the um, petition campaign, which began about six months ago, um, people, people were feeling, look, we have to direct this at the national government because, you know, we've got to get the taxation system directed at the problem, we've got to get, you know, national leadership, etc. Yeah, all those but, changes need to happen at that level, don't they? Well, they certainly do. But the problem, the problem is, it's a catch-22 because um, people are not quite sure what to do. But I'll, I'll get, sorry, they're not quite sure how to get this thing started. But I'll come back to the theory of change in a moment. But the, the basic idea is, rather than starting at the national level as the main thrust of what we're doing, even though we're calling for, that, for the national government to take action, the idea is to actually get local governments to do... The, the, the normal thing, which would be to try and implement, for example, when I say normal, the normal thing that BZE would be calling for beyond zero emissions would be let's restructure the economy locally, get zero emissions, introduce drawdown, etc. But also local councils can play a role in mobilising the citizens in their area to actually engage the wider community, the, the state level government, the national government, etc. And so what we've got is a strategy which we've called the upwards, outwards, downwards strategy. Um, downwards refers to getting the solutions in place locally and building the democratic mandate. Outwards refers to councils reaching out to each other, to other councils and saying, why don't you join in and do this declaration as well? And then the upwards push is to get the um, state government, territory government and then the national government to take take on the declaration as well. Um, so that's the basic sort of three prongs, if you like. So the idea is to, to get it, the declaration going at local government level and from there push it in every direction around around that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so why... You, you've touched a little bit on, on the whys of this, but w- um, can you expand a little bit on why take this approach? What, what is yeah. it about local government? What's the advantage of, of starting there? Well, if you started at the national level, you've got a sort of a one-shot chance, maybe a two-shot chance, you know, will the Liberals do it? Not looking terribly likely at the moment. Would Labor do it? Looking slightly more likely, but not not very. So you, you've got this one or two shot chance. If, on the other hand, you, you st- and, and and if you fail, then the community itself will say, "Oh, look, you know, we knew that it was never going to work," and and so the cynicism kind of builds up. On the other hand, if you start at the local level, you can go to the parts of the country that have got the highest level of commitment to climate action, and so these people are kind of like the early adopters. They want to make something happen. They, they'll be a bit tolerant of us learning how to do the declaration work. And you can build on an existing groundswell. That's that right, exactly. And so, okay, so we're, we're aiming, for example, to um, try and get the first um, declaration of a climate emergency in Australia to, to happen in the Darabin City Council area. 
Um, why is that? Well, one, the council's now got a majority um, with a strong Greens contingent, the Greens mayor, who are keen to do this. So that's that's one thing. Secondly, the community keeps on coming up in polls around the uh, country as being the area in Australia with the strongest commitment to climate action. So this is... Yeah. So this is this is a group of people who, who are most likely to want to make it happen. And then once we actually do the declaration, figure out the politics of it, figure out the implementation, then we can say, Okay, we've got a case study, we've got an example and then people can start to start to copy it. And so those people, probably most of us, tend to sort of say when a new idea comes up, they say Where's it been done before? Absolutely, yeah, you're you're looking for the pre existing example. That's right, that's right. So so that's that's the basic, you know, argument I guess. It's okay, so you are not you're not looking for a sort of a synchronized uh, a declaration synchronized across local councils. You're happy for it to take sort of a, a wave approach and, and a bit of a chain reaction, is that Yeah, definitely. The chain reaction's the thing. It's it's a kind of a ripple mobilisation where you start start where you're strongest and then ripple outwards across the local councils according to like once you can prove it in one place it'll make it easier to get to a, you know, get support in another area that probably might have been a bit more cynical when you first started out. Um, and so you can ripple out across the local governments, then you ripple upwards to the you know, the most likely state and territory governments. So probably the ACT might be the first one to make the change. Who knows, maybe South Australia might do it next. Yes, they've already set ambitious targets, haven't they? Yeah. Um, but but you can start to demonstrate what the hell this thing means in practice, and so it's much more likely that, that people will take it seriously. So if people are interested in this or looking to support it, what, yep. where can they go? Okay, if they, if they can contact myself, that's uh, Philip Sutton, um, and uh, if they look on the web and find um, RSTI, um, uh, RSTI um, is the organisation, and if they want to give me a ring in Melbourne, uh, it's uh, 90789746. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Philip. So um, it, just to reiterate that for the listeners, um, RSTI, um, Google RSTI and Philip Sutton if you're interested in, in exploring this um, his concept of the climate emergency declaration further. Philip, thanks very much for your time today, and I'm sorry that we had to keep it pretty short. It's, there's there's a lot in in all you're thinking about that, but um, thank you very much for sharing it with us. No worries. Thanks for the chance. So this theme of taking action in our local communities is um, explored by our next speaker. The renowned Professor Kate Orty, ACT Commissioner for Sustainability, speaks with her usual eloquence and passion about her theory of change and the impact we can have at the local level. I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Professor Kate Audie. Kate is, uh, has a fantastic and wonderful uh, rounded experience across many, many issues, including climate. Professor Kate Audie comes to us with a, 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 a take on climate change that is many, many years in the making and a, a, a perspective about sustainability that I think adds uh, the opportunities that climate change brings as opposed to just what it is as a scary, terrifying topic. Uh, she looks at the bads and the goods, but she's also looked at what it means for Australia and how we can define ourselves through this issue. Kate was appointed Commissioner for Sustainability and Environment for the ACT in 2016. 
Uh, Kate is also, uh, in, from 2014, the Vice Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne, right here, and the Chair of the Advisory Board for the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. Prior to this, Kate was the Victorian Government's Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability. She was a senior lawyer for the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which we heard of earlier, and she has worked to incorporate an understanding of the underlying issues across a really wide and varied spectrum. Kate uh, has developed curriculum and reports on natural resources management, native title, indigenous issues, and the choices facing local government in regard to a rapidly changing climate. In 2008 and 2009, Kate was the chair of the Victorian Ministerial Reference Council on Climate Adaptation and a member of the Premier's Reference Committee on Climate Change. Thanks again. I'm assuming, and assumptions are always a dangerous thing, but I'm assuming that you're here because we're all thinking about a theory of change. And I'm assuming that you're interested in what mine is. It's actually deceptively very simple. It is start where you are, organise and show where you've been. And all of those things lead to, those three significant but small steps lead to change and they promote in us an enthusiasm for what I call and what I've discussed with Aboriginal people as being able to take over. Now, I don't mean that in a bullying sense. I don't mean that in slapping someone around because you happen to disagree with them. But when you talk to Aboriginal people about taking over as you walk into a Koori court, you suddenly see people who are emboldened and enabled. And every time I've ever felt like I was in a position to take over, sometimes it's just been good luck and good management rather than good management. But every time it's ever happened to me, it's because I've known that I needed to start where I was, think about the things that were important to me, know that they had to do with place and people, so that's about community, organise both up, down and outwards, and then show what we've done. You're going to see us take photos here tonight and you're going to be thinking, oh God, they're out there on the Twitter art here and whatever. It's about showing what you've done. You've come here tonight to talk about climate. You've done it because you're concerned. You know that there are some great things happening. They're probably happening in your own backyard. They may be happening in the subnational strata of your government, but they're not happening at the federal level. Now, I've been asked to talk about the Federals, I've been asked to talk about the ACT, and I'm going to talk about ourselves. At the Federal level, let me say this. We've signed, we've ratified, we've ratified the Paris Agreement. That's a fantastic thing. But it's only as good as the ink on the paper if we really take it seriously. We know that when we were in Marrakesh, what happened was we were regarded as fifth and sixth worst in the world about what we were doing about climate change at a federal level. I've just come back from the Netherlands, and it's a tiny country that's mostly under sea level, and they've been thinking about these matters, of course, for a very long time. It was extraordinarily embarrassing to be talking in the Netherlands about what our ecological footprint is in the ACT. It's 8.9 hectares per person. We need 14 Australian Capital Territories to sustain us in the Australian Capital Territory. When you start talking to people about that in the Netherlands, you know that they struggle with what it means, even though they would say that they could do better about their energy use. But the people around the table also in the Netherlands were from places like Colombia and Costa Rica. They were people who came from Nicaragua. 
They were people whose central banks had said, we have to have a place in our bank where we think about what the environment means, what the environment's value to us is, what the benefits of having clean air, water, soil, what those benefits are. You've got this happening all over the world and you come back here and I came into Melbourne and I looked at the smog and I thought to myself, we are crapping in our own nest. It's a great old Australian aphorism, pardon me for using it, but we are crapping in our own nest. Here we are. We're falling behind. If you listen to John Hewson, it's not just me thumping the table or in some rat bag. If you listen to John Hewson, we're being told by him, a bloke who, for the Liberals, endeavoured to be the leader of this country. Our Paris commitment is about half what it should be to make our national contribution to global zero net emissions by 2050. What he says is we need a national energy policy. We need to be serious. We need to be concentrated and we need to make sure that our federal government gets it, that we need solid policy foundations. Business wants us to say that there is certainty. Business is not going to be an insignificant player in what we need to see happen. And it was no surprise to anybody who was in Paris last year that business was a big player. Donald Trump, who may or may not be the president after we have some recounts, but probably will be, Donald Trump is facing 360 very senior, serious companies saying to him, mate, if you want to back away from Paris, you're dead in the water for us. We can't do it. We're in a situation where what I would describe as the wealthy Western capitalist world, and that would be us and the United States, are basically saying this is good enough. Well, it just isn't. I don't have any kids, I don't have any grandchildren, and I'm sure many of you here in the hall, in this great hall today, tonight, do. And what we want to be saying to our federal government is policy, strong policy, meaningful policy, policy that fulfills our Paris commitment, not just a signature on the ratification, something serious. I think it's fair to say that the federal government is letting us down. I think it's fair to say that there's an awful lot happening that has nothing to do with the federal government and is actually working in deep resistance to the federal government, thank God, and it's coming out of what I would describe as our sub-national governments. It's coming out of places like the little ACT where we have that shocking ecological footprint. It's coming out of places like Victoria where you now have renewable energy targets that you can be proud of to some extent. It's coming out of what's happening in defiance of what our federal government should be doing. Now, you don't need me to tell you that, probably, and many of you are the people who tramp up and down the streets and protest, and you're here tonight because that's the case. But we need to celebrate the things that we're doing. The ACT is going to be 100% renewable by 2020. It's big. That's not little. That's not something to to use another Australian aphorism, piss upon, it's big. We need to be celebrating those things and it's happening at the sub-national level. Now, I happen to take the view that one of the reasons that's occurring is because people like you and me and my little community 
I'm living in the ACT, I'm working in the ACT. We're going to produce the usual reports that a commissioner reports on state of the environment, whether we're going to be meeting our action plan targets in relation to climate change and adaptation, whether we've got adequate uh, things in place to deal with water issues. We're going to be doing that. But everywhere I look, what happens with sub-national governments is they are driven by the people who elect them and they're driven by people like you and me. And I want to share with you some stories about the stuff that I think is the stuff of change. And I started with my theory of change. Start where you are. Organise. Show where you've been and take over. Now, please forgive me for repeating it, but it's just absolutely critical to what I think we need to do. What we're seeing in places like the ACT and Canberra is people coming together to think about what's happening in the schools their kids go to. We're seeing them say we want community gardens. It might seem trite, but it's about knowing where your food comes from and getting your hands in the soil and coming up with dirty fingernails. That's about knowing the place you care about. We're watching in the ACT people come together in organised packs, and I love the fact that they're packs to deal with those sorts of issues which raise concerns for their kids in schools. But they're also thinking about solar panels, they're also thinking about energy, they're also thinking about backing in their government to this 100% renewable target and try to find ways to make sure they're part of the equation. Because it frankly empowers you and makes you proud to be there. It makes me proud to be part of a community that takes these really serious challenges right up to the politicians. If I use the example that speaks to me most of what I think is going to get us to change, it is in fact a much smaller community than the ACT. It's where I live on the weekends and whenever I can get back there, Euroa. It's a tiny town, it's 350,000, 3,500 people. Canberra's 350,000 people. 3,500 people in Euroa. About two years ago, we sat around a kitchen table and said to ourselves, OK, what can we do? Let's have a bit of an environment series. Let's have a session. Let's invite someone up to come and talk to us about good climate science. It became apparent to me that we needed to do that in what I would describe as a fairly well-off, although it comes in under the CFER equations, not so well-off community. And Aboriginal people had taught me that was important. The Yorta Yorta had said on the Murray, we can get bad climate science any time we like. We can pay $5 to go along and hear somebody in the hall. Where can we get the good climate science? How can we get this communicated to us? How can we have good climate science communication? And we organised for Monash University and the fantastic Dave Griggs and Amanda Lynch went up to Barmer a number of times and sat around the table and learnt that they needed to think about different ways to communicate messages to Aboriginal people and others. And scientists were learning from the public. Dave Griggs makes no bones when he says to me about what he learnt from that, that he thought he was going to contribute nothing. He came away knowing that he had learnt an extraordinary amount. So, the Yorta Yorta Climate Change Group taught me that we need to make sure we sit around the table and we listen to what we've got to say and we think about how we can communicate these messages meaningfully about places we care about. There we were in Euroa, thinking about an environment seminar. And David Caroli, of course, said, I'll come. And why did David Caroli say that to us? Because he thinks it's important to communicate the science. 
and we just need to ask these people to do it. Rather like Julian and I being here tonight, you just need to ask us. We'll come along and rant any time you invite us. But David Paroli came and said, yes, of course. And then we became emboldened in our tiny little part of the world and we thought we can do better than one single seminar. And we started to think about what we might talk about. That particular place has been really concerned about biodiversity for some time and we can get a crowd together about biodiversity at the drop of a hat. We have people currently on the Strathbogie Ranges worried about the fact that Vic Forest is felling selected timbers in the, in, the, in the forest up there. We can do that like that. People will come and talk about biodiversity. How are we going to get them to think about biodiversity, climate change, what we're going to do when species and the Great Barrier Reef are not only under threat but gone? And we struggled to come up with a template, but we nevertheless did. And we had people come and talk to us about water. So the Golden Broken Catchment Management Authority arrived and said, we want to talk about water. And we said, we want to talk about being part of the bigger picture. We want to talk about being part of the Murray-Darling Basin because Euroa is in the Murray-Darling Basin. Suddenly we had people talking about water on a broader canvas. We also had in our part of the world Bob Welsh, and some of you will know him as a person who was the former chair of Vic Super. He's retired up there and he's got a bit of a block of land on the top of the Strathbogie Ranges. And we said to Bob, can you come and talk about climate change and superannuation? And geez, we agonised about whether we'd get anybody to that that particular day. But 50 people came and they came from everywhere. They came from Wodonga, they came from Mansfield, they came from Tatura, they came from Shepparton, and some of them were, get this, accountants. So we'd moved from the ecologists, because we're all clean and green and full of that sort of hand-wringing stuff, to accountants wanting to know about how they were going to think about climate change from the point of view of their clients and risk management. And over that year, we organised 10 series sessions, and every one of them was extraordinarily well attended. Our little community produced, on most of those days, a Saturday for about six hours, the same number of people that is here tonight. And we talked about these issues uphill and down dale. And on one occasion, we had somebody come up from, Victor from Melbourne who was part of Vox Bandicoot, who you probably all know, and one of the people in the crowd stood up when we came to question and answer, and this is your part tonight, and said, how can we make, how can we make Euroa 100% renewable? And we had no idea, because you don't always know where you're going to land with this stuff, whether anybody would be interested. 40 hands went up out of our 75 or 80 people. And we called that the Committee of 40, because we like a touch of irony. The Committee of 40 has now met, and instead of being a group of people, a bit of a rabble, a Ned Kelly gang, a gang of people who thought that we would have a bit of a conversation, we now have an alliance. We have a Strathbogie and Seymour Energy Alliance. And we have a grant from Lily D'Ambrosio to consider pumped hydro energy storage, which is the alternative way to store renewable energy. And we have that alliance dealing with what is possible out of the Strathbogie Ranges and what is possible out of Seymour with dams that are already in situ. Intraworld, for instance, in Seymour, the dam there or the reservoir there has not been used for some years and we didn't even know whose it was. 
the water board has come on board to talk about it. The water board wanted to discuss this. They also wanted to talk to us in Strathbogie about what we were doing because we've got three dams coming out of the Strathbogie ranges from the little town of Strathbogie down to Euroa. The water board wanted to talk about solar energy because if you put those panels on the biggest dam down the bottom of the hill, you'll be doing two things. You'll be stopping what is the evaporation and you'll also be dealing with blue-green algae. But you'll be getting them some brownie points for what they know they need to do, which is driven by a Victorian government policy that water boards have to reduce their carbon footprint. A perfect storm of achievable possibilities. Having had that conversation, we also called on, because we were, it was suggested to us by Taryn Lane from Hepburn Wind, we also called on the local energy producer, Osnet. We're tiny. We meet in the library. There's three people, maybe eight, maybe ten. And we ring Osnet and we say to them, can you come and talk to us about energy because we think energy is the next big transitive force in this country. They couldn't get up the highway quick enough. They couldn't get into the library quick enough. And after our conversation, we were doing cartwheels coming out of it because what happened was we had been told that we were on the edge of the grid. And being on the edge of the grid has always been the place for losers. Suddenly, being on the edge of the grid is the place where the winners are because we could start being producers of energy, not just consumers of energy. We suddenly had this massive energy company wanting to talk to us about the possibilities of churning energy back into the grid, not just taking it out of it. This particular company has a couple of diesel generators in the showgrounds just over the back of our house and whenever we need more power in summer, they turn them on. They'd probably be quite happy to continue doing that, but here's an achievable alternative and they want to be in the conversation. So my story is, we never knew what we might achieve. We had no idea what our tiny little symposium would produce. But these were the things that come through and they come through everywhere we want to get action. We cared about the place we were in. We had people in that group who were an artist, a logistics firm, a person who was a former teacher, a person who was a retired teacher, two lawyers, as in me and Charlie, and others who came along from newer fields, for instance, an aeronautical engineer and his partner who's in real estate. And these people sat around the table and said, there are possibilities and we want to be amongst them. We deal with, in our tiny part of the world there, a fairly resistant conservative shire. We went around them. And that lesson for me and probably for others comes from the experiences we acquire over time. My great experience of reframing things comes again from exposure to Aboriginal people. And I was at one time in my rather checkered career a lecturer and project developer at Deakin University. In that role, we had for a long time asked the university to allow Aboriginal students to wear the colours, so that's the red, gold and black as they graduated, with their other colours. Universities in our country do very nicely out of Aboriginal students and as I understand it, it doesn't even matter if they uh, graduate. So we knew that we had a value proposition. 
but for the best part of 10 years we've been saying to the university, could we let Aboriginal students wear the colours as they parade across the graduating stage? And we were told no. And one of the reasons for that became very clear to me when I first arrived there was because we were asking for something in the most polite of tones and we hadn't reframed the conversation in a way that spoke to us. So Wendy Brabham said to me, we're going to have this conversation, Kate, it will be difficult and the protocol people will tell us we can't do what we know we want to do and what the students are telling us they would like to do and what their families would be honoured by having done. We know that we won't get the colours. And overcame the protocol people and we went down to the meeting and the protocol people said, but if we let you do that, we'll have to let the Maltese and the Turks and everybody else and the Greeks, they'll all have to wear their natural, their natural color, national colours. And I said to Wendy, I think that we probably aren't getting very far with this conversation. Let's just break and have a think about it. Now, sometimes you need an outsider. Sometimes you need somebody who just comes from outside and doesn't get what's really happening. And I think that day I was probably that outsider. Having said to Wendy, we need to reframe this, I suggested to her that there were also some deeply cultural issues associated with what was happening. And that if we stopped asking for something and gifted the university something, we might get a whole lot further. We called back over the protocol people after we had a conversation with some very senior Aboriginal people and they were in fact Jim Berg and an auntie who's passed away. And in having that conversation, we asked them if they would gift the colours to the university at the graduation ceremony. And they both said they would be delighted to do so. We called the protocol people back over and we said to them, we're not asking you for something at this stage. We're going to gift the colours to the Vice-Chancellor. We will gift those colours from very senior Aboriginal people to your very senior Vice-Chancellor. And we want you to go back and talk to the Vice-Chancellor about this reframing. Five minutes past, Aboriginal people in Deakin can now wear the colours. They will be able to wear them when they want to, or if they don't want to, they don't have to. We reframed the conversation, and we did it on the basis that there are different cultural ways of looking at things. So, two lessons. That one is one of them, and being on the edge of the grid, you're a loser, and suddenly you're not a loser any longer. I'm not going to patronise any of you by giving you data which you are no doubt absolutely all over. Many of you are here tonight because you know the facts and figures. You know what's important. You know what we're looking at. You know if we adhere to the federal government's current agenda in terms of targets, we will still have, we will still have more than two degrees warming. And if we have that, the planet becomes intolerable. Some of us will be able to turn our air conditioners on. But I happen to know that kids who go to school or don't go to school in places like Walgett, Kalgoorlie and the Western Desert won't be turning on an air conditioner. And the poor and the battlers will be deeply, deeply further deprived. Now, we have a responsibility. It's something that was inculcated in me as a kid from my parents. We have a responsibility. Our governments have a responsibility. And those of them that don't assume it shouldn't be returned to election, after elections. And if they are, if they are, then our responsibility is to make sure we continue to start where we are, organise and show where we've been and take over. That was Professor Kate Orty, and you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR 855 on the AM dial.
If you've been inspired by Kate, and I certainly am after hearing that, and wondering what you can do next, go along to the Sustainable Living Festival. This really is something for everyone with an enormous range of events and workshops. To check out their program, go to slf.org.au and you can see the program for the festival and plan your participation. BZE will have a stand at the festival over the big weekend on the 10th, 11th and 12th of February. So please come and speak to us about our plans for Australia's transition to zero carbon. Also, remember to tune in to 3CR at 8.30 on a Friday morning for the Beyond Zero Emissions Science and Solutions show with Kay, Mike and myself. Podcasts for both programs can be accessed at bze.org.au. And that's also where you can find details of the discussion group coming up next Monday evening at the University of Melbourne. Our guest speaker is Brendan Condon, Director of The Cape, Victoria's first climate-adapted greenfield housing project. Everyone is welcome to come and join us for the discussion group. Thanks again to Andy on the panel, and thanks for joining us this afternoon, listeners. The 18th National Sustainable Living Festival is on again from the 4th to the 28th of February 2017. As dangerous climate change continues to threaten the things we care about, a sustainable lifestyle and restoring a safe climate is more important than ever. Featuring leading forums, artworks, talks, exhibitions and a new online festival program, it's time to ramp up the message and protect the things you care about. Event applications and full details at slf.org.au. A 3CR supporter.